Morning, everybody. It's good to see you today. Um, we have been in a series in the letter, Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we continue in that today. Um, before we get into some of that, I wanted to just share with you, give, make, make sure we all have clarity about this. There's some cards. Maybe you've received one on the way in today. They're also in the back on one of the tables. These are our Faith Promise Pledge cards. And so what we're asking you to do next Sunday, we're going to have communion by intention. You'll come up here to the front, receive the elements on your way by. There'll be a basket here at the front. And you can just place your card in that basket. What this is, is it's saying over the course of this next year, uh, between now and the end of the year, um, you're putting a number on this card uh, that the Lord is leading you to put down um, and anticipating that that money's going to show up. Uh, you're putting your faith that the God is the number he's putting on your heart that he's going to provide that uh, that money. So that's and that money all all of that um, goes toward our missions um, missionaries that we support and we'll get to meet them next weekend. So just so you know you need to have one of these cards next week and you'll turn that in on your way uh, to receive communion next Sunday. Again you can pick one up on the way out today or they're just um, they're on the table in the back. So um, we are in a series traveling through Paul's letter to the Colossians. I'm very excited about today. Say, Gordon, why are you very excited about today? Because the Lord's good. Um, and it's been great spending time with his word this week. And I'm just confident that his truth, uh, when it hits our ears, when, it, when, when we are able to see it with clarity, that it makes an eternal impact in us. And so I'm excited to be able to share that with you today. Our text comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. And what we'll see in these verses is kind of the before and the after. I didn't have a title for this sermon earlier in the week when we were printing out bulletins, I, so you just got the text. But today, I'm telling you, my title is Before and After. So let's stand and read from God's Word today, Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, the before and after. Here we go, verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You may be seated. All right, so let's walk through these verses together. Uh, verse 21, Paul writes, And you who were alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. So let's stop right there. I've got a slide for you here. And this is the before. This is, be this is Paul referring to the Colossians before they had put their faith and trust in Jesus before they had entered into a relationship with him. And so he's describing his audience before that time. Uh, this is not Paul trying to pick on the Colossians, trying to point out some character flaws that perhaps this church uniquely possesses. That's not what this is. This is a universal description of anyone who has not received coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is how God sees the Colossians in anyone who is not in a relationship with him. This is our status before Jesus Christ, uh, before we come into a relationship. Paul says, number one, that before these Colossians became Christians, they were alienated, alienated, that is, from God. This is, a, in the Greek language here, it's referring to kind of a, a human uh, disengagement or a human estrangement. Paul is saying not that they were aliens from outer space. That's not what he's referring to here. He's saying that they were outsiders when it comes to the family of God, that they were not God's children. They were distant. They were far off from him. Secondly, Paul says of the Colossian Christians that before they 
came to Christ, they were hostile in mind. The Greek word there is the word dianoia, and it has a sense of someone who has a bad attitude. Now, this is not just a bad attitude in general, but this is a bad attitude whenever they hear the truth of God spoken. This is a bad attitude in regard to anything about Jesus. This is what Paul is saying, that they're hostile in their mind toward any discussion of God's absolute truth. And what are the fruits of someone who has a bad attitude toward the things of God? Number three, it leads to doing evil deeds. Paul could have simply said that they were doing bad things. But Paul uses a more forceful language saying that they were doing evil deeds. And the reason is because the sin in their life, God doesn't categorize sin. He doesn't have sin light and sin heavy. Sin to God is sin. And so all of sin in his eyes is evil. And so Paul is referring to the fact that they were sinful people. And because of that, we can, we can categorize their, their actions as evil deeds. However, there's an expectation that Paul is building to here. Remember that this was their life, their former way of life. He's talking about life in the past tense. That is before they had come into this relationship with Jesus. And so Paul is building toward a contrast between the life before Christ, B.C., and their life after they've come into a relationship with him. When we get to verse 22, some things have changed. Paul writes in verse 22, he has now, referring to the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. Paul is reminding the Colossians of what Jesus had done for them. When Jesus hung on the cross, he bore in his physical body the sins of the world. He bore your sins. He bore my sins. He bore the sins of the whole world, past, present, and future, in his physical body. Speaking about Jesus, Peter writes, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin. You say, well, Gordon, how can Jesus bear the sins of people who hadn't even committed those sins yet? Friends, I don't understand in cosmic terms how all this works, but I know that that's what the Bible says, that Paul, before he had even sinned, Jesus's sins were, uh, had, Paul's sins had been heaped on Jesus's uh, life while he hung there on the cross. And he says, by his wounds, you have been healed. Back to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 22, Paul says, Jesus has reconciled us back to God. No longer are we alienated. No longer are we hostile in mind toward him. We are not longer outside the family. We've been brought near to God. And notice the past tense of the word reconciled. This is not some future expectations that the Colossians might expect when they get to heaven that then they finally get to be reconciled with God. Paul is referring to this in the past tense that this has already happened. That when they entered into a relationship with Jesus, when they pleaded the blood of Jesus over the sins of their life, that they were then in that moment reconciled uh, between themselves and God the Father in heaven. In other words, we can experience that now. The Colossians have been, past tense, reconciled. You with me so far? Okay. Um, I know this is a lot of technical language here this morning, but y'all just hang in there with me. Hopefully it'll all uh, come together. All right. Now, along with um, being reconciled, there are some other cosmic changes that take place uh, between or, or how God regards these Colossian Christians. Look at verse 22. It says, the Lord Jesus has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death on the cross in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That is before God. Now, there is some debate amongst biblical scholars as to whether or not this statement refers to some future in the distant future um, expectation, a future presentation of us before the throne of God, of being made holy and blameless and above reproach before the throne of God, or does this in fact, um, does it have the sense of us being reconciled in the past, but also when we were reconciled, we were at that same time made holy, made blameless, made above reproach. And so as I was thinking about that, this, in other words, here's the question, if I'm reconciled now, which I am, 
but am I also made holy, blameless, and, and above reproach now? Like, do the two go hand in hand? Or am I waiting until I get to eternity before I get perfected? Well, personally, as I was studying this this past week and praying over this text, um, I came to the conclusion that it's both. It's both. First, I know, and it is very obvious to me, and I don't need anybody to point it out to me on the way out of church today, that I am not perfect. Um, all you need to do is ask my children. All you need to do is ask my wife. I'm very, very self-aware on that point, okay? Um, even so, I anticipate a day when I will stop doing dumb things, when I will stop making mistakes, when I, anticipating a day when I will stop reacting poorly, when I will have right motives in my heart, when the selfishness that is within me will depart from me forever. I look forward to that day we call that heaven. However, while I may not be perfect yet, in God's eyes, I have been, past tense, reconciled, justified, sanctified, ransomed, forgiven. All this stuff is in the past. This is what God has accomplished already. That is, I have been made holy, I have been made blameless, I have been made above reproach in God's eyes already. Friends, as God is, God is a holy God and he cannot enter into a relationship with someone or something that is unholy. And yet he is in a relationship with you, he's in a relationship with me. Why? Because by the blood of Jesus we have been made holy, we have been made blameless, we have been made above reproach in his eyes. This is how God sees you and how God sees me. So in the one sense, I'm looking forward to becoming holy and blameless and above reproach. I'm looking forward to being perfected. And yet, as far as God is concerned, in his eyes already, in the already happened when I put my faith and trust in Jesus, I am already holy and blameless and above reproach. That's how God sees me even now. As one commentator put it, I, and I'll share with you what he said, it says, um, the Christian's presence, or the Christian's present lives are lived in God's presence. God's act of reconciliation has already accomplished everything. Perfection is thus not to be gained by one's striving. Rather, perfection is there, a gift to be received now. We'll talk about that in a few moments, uh, but let's go ahead and finish out this passage, verse 23. Verse 23 has been the subject of much theological debate. I mean, going hundreds of years, this has been going on since long, long time. Um, and it raises the question, here's why it's a, 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 a point of issue, is because it raises the question of, is salvation conditional? Can salvation be lost? Can a person come into relationship with Jesus and then that relationship be terminated at some point in this life before they die? Or is it a settled and once and for all issue when you make a decision to follow Jesus? Let's take a look. Paul writes, verse 23, you will be holy. Remember, he's talking about how we're going to be holy, how we are holy, blameless, and above reproach now. Um, we're reconciled now. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. In other words, not shifting from some, to some other plan of salvation. You're, you're counting on getting heaven some other way. You've left the way of Jesus and you're looking at some other way, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. All right, let's take a look at that statement very clearly. I mean, doesn't Wherever you fall on the theological spectrum with regard to this issue, everybody agrees that this is a conditional statement that Paul makes here. Uh, the condition is that you have to continue in the faith. And what do you receive if you meet that condition? You are reconciled to God. You keep, to get, keep being holy and blameless and above reproach in God's eyes with future expectation of perfection. You see the problem here, though. I mean, you read that statement, and at face value, you can see why a guy like John Wesley, huh, you know, or why other theologians have said there seems to be an indication here in the text that salvation is conditional, that it can be lost. 
I mean, just a face value reading of that. Um, here's what the, God's Word seems to be saying, at least at face value. That we're going, and we're going to get deep into the weeds here in just a few moments, so hang with me. But at face value, it appears to say that there is a condition placed on retaining salvation. That's what that verse seems to be indicating. That a person has to continue in the faith. That's what Paul said. Stable and steadfast. Not shifting away from the gospel that they heard. Now, we have a group of guys that meets um, every other week at Strickland's. Any of y'all guys are welcome to join us. Uh, one meets at 645 on Thursdays every other week. The other meets at 8 o'clock on Wednesdays every other week. And um, we'd love for to have you. We just do Bible study. And so selfishly, I asked the guys, hey, can we look at Colossians chapter 1? <laughs> Because I wasn't real sure about this passage, and I wanted to bounce some stuff off of some folks and get some ideas. And so that's what we did. They graciously um, agreed to do that. And so I, we, we read these verses that we just had studied here uh, just moments ago. And I shared with them much of what I've shared with you. And I asked them, I said, now tell me, what did you hear? What did you hear? What, what point do you think Paul is trying to make? Because that, that's the real issue here. It's not... Um, parsing words here and all that sort of stuff. It's what is the point? What is Paul trying to say? That's what we're trying to get at. And so we kicked it around for a little bit. And then one of the guys said, and I got to tell you up front, I think he was right in his assessment of this. Here's what he had to say. He said, I don't think Paul was trying to stir up fear and anxiety about people losing their salvation. So I, I don't think that's what Paul's intention is at all in writing these words. Rather, he says, it seems to me that Paul is simply trying to motivate the Colossians to stick it out. And, and he's trying to motivate them. It's almost like he knows that they will. He knows that they're going to continue in the faith. But he wants to give them a little kick in the rear end to remind them of where they've come from before. And what God has accomplished in them now, who they are now, after. And so he's trying to show them the value of sticking this thing out. He said it's kind of like a parent who tells a teenage son or daughter before they leave the house. Now I know that you're going to behave yourself tonight. And now, does a parent know with absolute certainty that that child is going to behave themselves? Of course they don't. But that is their expectation, it is their hope, and it is their confidence even. And so I think that he's right in saying that I think we have here a statement of expectation, not a statement designed or intending to introduce doubt and fear and anxiety, but rather whose aim is to reinforce the desired and expected outcome. Um, the uber-technical explanation, I'm just going to go ahead and give that to you, um, comes from the Greek language. And in the Greek language, this phrase is what's referred to as a first-class conditional. If you've ever sat in a Greek class before and you've heard them uh, talk about stuff, they get to the first-class conditional, everybody gets all excited. Uh, because it's in verses like this. Well, first-class conditional, what that means is that the, the, and again, this is language experts creating these little terminologies and stuff. Um, but what a first-class conditional is, it's where the author is knowing that his audience is going to meet the requirement puts it out there like it's a condition puts it out there like you could fail but the author knows first class conditional that you are going to follow through on this um, there's also a second class conditional in the greek and that's where they put the condition out there knowing that the person's going to fail that the person's not going to meet the condition to receive. And then there's a third class conditional where it's, it's undetermined as to whether, whether or not the author thinks, yes, they will, whether they won't. But this is first class conditional in the Greek, and so it means that the author knows. Even though he's putting it out there like a condition, he knows that they're going to meet up to this requirement. And so with all of that combined, I don't see this passage as an opportunity for arguing against 
perseverance of the saints. So if that's your particular theological thought, you can, you know, feel better about that. And we'll have to, if you're, if you're Wesleyan Arminian, you'll have to find some other passages of Scripture. And there are some that we can bounce around, but we're not doing that today. All right, so um, that's our text for today. And so that means it's our time, uh, it's time for us to ask our most important question. And that question is, what difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I mean, I appreciate first class conditional. It's, I guess, good to know what that is. But I haven't taken an English or language arts exam in 20 plus years. What difference does any of this make to me? Um, well, let's see if we can answer that. I've got two points for you, two differences that it makes to your life and to mine. Number one is, um, first of all, go back with me to verse 22. Can we take a look at verse 22? Paul writes these words. He says, The Lord Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. We said earlier that we were looking forward to the day when we get to heaven when we'll no longer, you know, do dumb things and we'll no longer make mistakes and we'll no longer struggle with sin. But we also said that while we may not be there yet, nevertheless, in God's eyes right now, we are holy and blameless and above reproach. That's how God sees you, friends. When God looks upon you, that's what he sees, holy and blameless and above reproach. That's what the blood of Jesus has done for you. And if you're here today and you've never put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, I hope you see the contrast that Paul is making. That when you haven't done that, when you haven't entered a relationship with Jesus, God sees you as alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. But then when you come under the blood of Jesus, when you invite him into your life, God then begins to see you as reconciled. He sees you as blameless, as holy, as above reproach. Something for you to think about. Um, now, to help us wrap our minds around all of this, um, I thought it'd be fun to play a game. Y'all up for a game? This is one of these, um, I say something and then you repeat it after me. Can we do that? All right, so that, that, that's our little game here this morning. Um, uh, we've got a slide for you here. I think, yeah, it's the one with both before and the after, right? Um, yeah, that one. Um, and so I'm going to say, I'm going to say something and you repeat after me. Okay, here we go. You ready? I was alienated. Hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now I am reconciled, holy, blameless, and above reproach. Give yourself a hand. You did a good job. All right. That was kind of weak. So we're going to do it again. <laughs> now we won't do it again. Friends, that's a beautiful statement, and it reminds us of who we are in Christ. In fact, Paul goes on to repeat this statement several more times in his letter because perhaps, perhaps his audience, his, the people that he's writing to these Colossians Christians didn't believe it. They weren't so sure about their identity in Christ. And so Paul says, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's who you are. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. And you, who were once dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh before, now, after, you've been made alive together with him, having forgiven us our trespasses, verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he has set aside all of this, nailing it to the cross after you know, one of the things that the devil cannot stand is for us to see ourselves the way God sees us. The devil wants to keep dredging up past mistakes and past failures and past shortcomings. He wants to define us by our past evil deeds. God, on the other hand, clearly 
wants for us to be defined by our new status in him, that we are forgiven, that we are reconciled, that we are holy, blameless, and above reproach in his eyes. He wants to emphasize the newness of life that we have in Christ. Listen to these other scriptures, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's who you are. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. How about 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1? See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. How about uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17? I love this one. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new, would you please say the word new with me? He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Praise God for that. Here is where, here is where this is so important. If the devil can convince you to see yourself and be defined by your past mistakes and past failures and past sins, then the devil can steal away our future potential. However, seeing our life as a fresh start in Christ, which it is, which it is, well, the future in that case is wide open. Now, I got two ways that the devil works to, confine, uh, or to convince us to be defined by our past. Two ways that the devil has worked hard now, he doesn't own you. Jesus owns you. But the devil wants to own your future and your potential. And this is two ways that he does that. Number one is, um, and I'm going to move through these quickly. Number one is through self-deprecation or what we might call false humility. False humility. Self-deprecation is when we put ourselves down because we think that we're actually presenting ourselves in a humble way. Friends, that's not humility. That's self-deprecation. Real biblical humility is what Jesus did on the cross. It is sacrificing ourselves and sacrificing our resources and sacrificing our time for the sake of other people. Jesus did not walk around putting himself down. Jesus was never mur walking around murmuring, saying, oh, what a, what a terrible person I am. Jesus never did any of that. Never, ever, ever, ever can you read in red letter where Jesus said something like that about himself. That's what the Pharisees did. They put ashes on their face. They put torn claws around their head. And they'd walk out into public and show everybody, oh, you know, look at me. I'm all forlorn and I'm all sad and I'm all downcast. And Jesus said of that in Matthew chapter 6, he said, look, that's not going to get you anywhere with God. That might be good before men, but it's not going to get you anywhere with God. So self-deprecation is a false humility, and that's one way that the devil steals away our potential by painting a picture of ourselves that God does not see. Number two, a second way that the devil steals away our confidence and our potential in Christ is by convincing us that we still need to pay a price for our sins. By convincing us that we still need to pay some penance. And so I call this self-imposed penance. Let me read you that verse again from 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. Peter writes, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then he says, by his wounds you are healed. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, by your wounds you are healed. He says, by his wounds you are healed. Friends, the blood of Jesus shed on the cross was sufficient to pay the price for your sins and mine. You and I do not need to add 
additional penance to the work of Jesus on the cross. I run into way too many Christians who are trapped under a guise of thinking they still need to pay a price for the sins of the past. Friends, that is not biblical. That is not biblical at all. Listen to these verses from the words of the psalmist David. Psalm chapter 103 and verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's David writing those words. Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember your sins no more. And then how about straight from the lips of Jesus himself, who said, John chapter 8 and verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You know, I find it helpful that the Apostle Paul is the one who says these things about the Colossians. I mean, if there is someone on planet Earth at this time who had reason to self-deprecate and to pay penance for the sins of the past, it would be this man. I mean, here was a man who for years threw Christians in jail, separated husbands from wives, made orphans out of their children, and all because they had called on the name of Christ. Here is a man who, when he had walked through the streets of town, Christians would duck out of sight. He was feared and for good reason. He was a brutal person. He stood there while Stephen was stoned to death, holding the coats of the men, while one of God's beloved children was smashed over and over and over again. I find it helpful that it is this man who says, we are reconciled, holy, blameless, and above reproach. Think of the potential of life, of his life stolen if he had chosen to listen to the devil going around, putting himself down everywhere he went, punishing himself for sins that he had, that had already been paid for. Where would we be today? Where would you and I be today had Paul given in to that kind of thinking? Friends, God says in his eyes, we are reconciled, holy, blameless, and above reproach. Will we forgive ourselves the way God has forgiven us? Let's pray. Most gracious God, thank you so much for just a fresh reminder of who we are in your sight. Lord, when we come behind the cross of Christ, when we are covered in his blood, all things are made new. Lord, may we walk in the freedom of that knowledge every day, not walking around beating ourselves up, not walking around paying a price for the sins of the past, but Lord, literally putting everything where it belongs in hindsight. God, we just ask this morning as we come to this table, we're reminded of your sacrifice, of your shed blood, of your broken body. Or may we just in these quiet moments this morning, if some of us need to do some work on a cosmic level, allowing us to forgive ourselves and to put the past in the past, Lord, may your Holy Spirit work within us and steer us and guide us in that prayer. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We give you this time. We pray these things in Christ's holy name.